Well, as I said this evening, we look to God's Word summarized in Lord's Day 24. That's on page 34 in the back of your Psalter, 31 in the back of your Psalter hymnals. But I'd like to begin by reading with you from Jeremiah 9, the first 16 verses, and then at the very end of the chapter, verses 24 and 25, or 23 and 24. Now, Jeremiah 9, you know, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And there's reason for that. He was writing really at the end of Judea's time before the exile. He was crying out to the people to turn back like a a person calling out to someone whom he loves who has buried themselves in self-destruction in drugs and, and all kinds of self-destructive behaviors, and you can see the end that's coming. You can see that it's going to be a bad end. You keep calling out, drawing them back, urging them, but they won't turn. Well, that's Jeremiah. They continue. They persist in their rebellion, in their pride, in their stubbornness, and it's leading them to be cast off by the Lord. But they won't turn. And that's what he talks about here. He urges them to recognize who they are and to humble themselves in the light of that. And to look not to themselves, not to what they do, not to their circumstances, but to the Lord who alone can deliver us. He says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people and go from them. For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor, and do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and for the dwelling places of the wilderness a lamentation because they are burned up so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without inhabitant. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it. Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals which their fathers taught them. Therefore thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them the water of gall to drink. I will scatter them among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. Now that's bad news. That's bad news for those who are relying on themselves, on men. And not just for Jerusalem of old. Because the heart of fallen man has not changed. But here's the good news. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. That's our hope. Not in us, but in Him. And so it is we come to Lord's Day 24. Lord's Day 23 asked us, what good does it do you to believe all of these truths about God that you confess? And we found that the answer to that is really the heart of our hope. That in Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. And we talked about that a bit. But now Lord's Day 24 asks us why can't the good that we do make us right with God or at least help to make us right with God? The answer is because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. Even the very best that we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. So then the objection comes, how can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything when God promises to reward it in this life and the next? The answer is, this reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of, righteous, of gratitude. Beloved congregation chosen by God in Christ. This gospel that we've been studying, this gospel that we just read, it offends people deeply. And there are a number of reasons for that offense. But one of the greatest arises from pride. Especially the pride of self-sufficiency. I think most of you probably know that I like to fix things. I like to work with my hands. And whenever I'm able to fix a car or repair something in the house, it, it makes me thankful for the opportunity to use my gifts productively. I'm happy that I'm able to save a little bit of money. It's even, in a strange way, relaxing to do that kind of work for me. It's like a puzzle, something that's not working, and you get to figure out why it's not working and make it work. That's, that's relaxing to me. But there's also a temptation there. The temptation to think, I did that myself. I didn't need an expert. I'm good enough. That's pride. And that pride is deadly. It's a, 
a deadly trap that lurks in our work, that lurks in our families, that lurks in our communities, to think that we're better, that we're good enough, that we're sufficient in and of ourselves. And that temptation to pride, that temptation to thoughts of self-sufficiency, that's one of the main reasons that the gospel is so very offensive. Because folks want to do it themselves. They want to rely, at least in part, on themselves. They don't like having to admit that they're not enough, that they can't do it. But that's exactly what the gospel teaches us. And that's the message that Lord's Day 24 drives home. Here we see that Christian comfort comes from the incomparable work of Christ only. Not Christ and me, not Christ and my church, not Christ, no, from Christ only. Christian comfort comes from the incomparable work of Christ alone. And we need his work, first of all, to replace our imperfect works. That's our first point as we look at this Lord's Day. (coughs) Remember what we saw last Sunday. Were we to approach God on our own, we would be deeply in trouble. We'd be in trouble because we're filled with guilt that is a debt that we simply cannot pay. We examined that guilt. We saw that we're guilty for at least three kinds of sin. We're guilty for the covenantal sin that we have in Adam. When Adam sinned, he made all of us guilty. But then we're also guilty because of the the actual sins we've committed. The things we've done that God said not to do. The things that we've refused to do that God said we must do. And we're also guilty because of the sins we didn't do but we desired to do. Because when you treasure in your heart that desire to do sin, when you lay in your bed at night and you ponder how wonderful it would be to commit this sin that you don't really have the guts to commit, you've still committed the sin. You're still guilty. And so all of this leaves us mired in guilt and the defilement of sin. Problem is, God demands perfection. Our God is entirely just. It's against his very nature to just turn a blind eye to those who would rebel against him. And that means that, first of all, he demands perfect payment for the debt of our sin. To pay that debt, we would have to endure basically everything Jesus endured, not just the physical torment, but as I noted this morning, that horrific hell of knowing that God has rejected us. And we would have to endure it for all of our sins, which would utterly demolish us. The only reason Jesus could could rise up afterward is because he is also God. But what what if Jesus did that part? What if he paid the price... And then he kind of left us at point zero. Left us with a blank slate, as it were. That's what many people believe. That's essentially, without going into all the nuance, that's essentially what the Roman Catholics believe, what the Mormons believe, what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. There are nuances to how each one believes, but the essence is, Jesus paid for my sin, I need that. But now it's up to me, or now it's up to me and Jesus. But again, God demands perfection, not just in the payment of our debt, but also in our righteousness. We, have, we would have to perform perfectly, flawlessly, every last thing he has commanded. 
Every bit of worship he calls us to offer, every bit of mercy and love he calls us to show, every duty he sets before us with regard to God and man alike. We would have to do it all, and we would have to perfectly reject all of the sins that he has forbidden. That means not just the Ten Commandments. That means all of the case law that explains how those Ten Commandments apply to the various parts of our lives and all of the admonitions of the prophets that show how that case law can be mishandled and misused. And not just in what we do, but also in what we desire to do. And we couldn't slip even once. A while back, a young man (coughs) pointed out to me that I had said, we have all sinned against all of God's commands. And this young man pointed out, with that smirk that young men can get, I've never been married. I can't have broken the fifth commandment. Or the, yeah. He says, I can't, or the, sorry, the sixth commandment. He says, I couldn't, I couldn't have committed adultery. And I pointed out to him that while it's technically true that he couldn't have committed the technical sin of adultery, That commandment encompasses so much more. It's not only for those who are married and have relations with someone else. It's also for those who engage in those relations or desire and cultivate that desire for those relations outside of marriage, beyond marriage. And I said, I'm willing to bet that you have, in fact, broken that commandment. But even if you haven't, James 2, well, it gives us a dreadful warning. It says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, the law is like a pane of glass. You can't break just a little of it. It's either broken or it's whole. And so if you break this commandment, you've broken the law. You have become a transgressor in God's sight. You are guilty and therefore your righteousness fails God's test. God demands perfect righteousness, also perfect holiness. Time and again, in the Old Testament and the New, God says to his people, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That means we must be entirely unstained of guilt or defilement. We must be completely and perfectly devoted to our God. Devoted to Him with our bodies as well as our souls. Devoted with the use of our hands and the intention of our hearts. God demands perfection in every way. And folks, we can't. Of ourselves, we are no better. We are no different Then Israel of old, of whom Jeremiah said they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. What makes mankind weak and imperfect, it infects all of us. The problem is a veritable pandemic of sin. They proceed from evil to evil, for they do not know me, says the Lord. Jeremiah writes of a people that that lies and cheats. They speak falsely with one another. They're filled with dishonesty. He says, everyone take heed to his neighbor. Do not trust any brother. 
For every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit, through deceit. They refuse to know me. Time and again, he emphasizes they have no love for their fellow man. They cannot be trusted, even when when they look absolutely genuine. They're going to break your heart. And it's not just in their relationships with one another. The Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the bales which their fathers taught them. It's not just with men that they deal falsely. They deal falsely with God. Even the very best that Israel did was stained with sin, tainted with rebellion. So the Lord asks, shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself? And so he swore that he would destroy Jerusalem. He would cause Judea to be uninhabited. He would scatter them among the heathen people whom they were acting like. Because that's what their sins deserved. That's what our sins deserve. Their exile was an image of what we deserve, to be cast away from God and from His blessings. The only way we can truly be blessed is if we are perfect in the sight of God. And the only way that can happen is by His doing. He is the one exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. It is in these that He delights And therefore, He must be the one who shows this kindness to us, who restores us from our sin, who establishes the righteousness and the holiness that we desperately need. And that's exactly what He did when He sent His Son. We heard it in our form for the Lord's Supper this morning. He was bound that we might be loosed from our sins. He was innocent but condemned to death that we might be loosed from the condemnation that we deserve. He became a curse that we might have His blessing. He humbled Himself on the cross that God might never forsake us. All that was required of us, if we were to stand blamelessly before God, He accomplished every last bit of it, and He did it perfectly. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize that Christ came to replace our imperfect works with His perfect works. And there is no other way by which we can be made right in God's sight. So we need to stop trying. That's always a temptation for us in our sin, to find other ways beside Jesus. But there are no other ways. Not your works or your words, no bargaining with God or the prayers of your parents, not our best attempts to earn His favor. None of it is worthwhile in His sight. None of it can stand up to His scrutiny. We, t- we, we confess that we trust in Christ alone. But so often we're tempted to, to find our confidence in our church attendance or in our knowledge of the right facts or, or in the fact that we belong to a faithful church or we are born of a faithful family or we help others or we don't do all these bad things that other people do. But folks, even the very best person in this room falls abysmally short of God's standard. It is in Christ only that we can find our comfort. 
But if we trust in him, then folks, we can celebrate, we can rejoice, we can sleep well at night because he has done absolutely everything and he has done it with the utmost perfection. There's nothing left for us to do. He did it all. In him we're righteous. We heard it, we heard it again last week from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Behold, the old has come, has gone, and the new has come. Because God sent him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the truth for us. That's the reality for us who trust in Christ. But then the objection is raised. Well, how can you say that your, your good deeds, your behavior, your acts aren't helpful, aren't playing a role in your salvation if God promises to reward them. Well, you know what? The Bible does promise to reward us. The Bible tells us that we will be judged according to our works and that we will be rewarded according to our works. So Revelation 20, it says that at the end when Jesus comes back, the dead, small and great, will be standing before God and the books will be opened. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. They were judged, each one, according to their works. And then Revelation 22 tells us that we will be rewarded or not according to what we have done. Behold, he says, I am coming quickly and my reward is, give, is with me to give to everyone according to his works. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6, he said that if you give to the needy in secret, your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And if you pray in secret, he says your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And if you fast in secret, he says your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So the Bible tells us clearly that our works matter. God will reward them. God will recognize them. So how do we reconcile that with saying that, that all our salvation, our hope, our comfort come from Christ alone if he says that our works play a role in our reward? Well, brothers and sisters, we understand the Bible by means of the Bible itself. So consider first the judgment and the way our works play a role in the judgment. The Bible says in Revelation 20, the dead are judged according to their works. They were judged, each one, according to his works. Clearly, what we've done does play a role in our judgment. But the Bible also says, as we know so well, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. If we are saved, we are saved by what Jesus has done alone. It can't be more clear than that. That was loud. Even for the faith by which we receive Christ, we have to rest in Him. He's the one who gives it to us. But on that day of judgment, He looks at our works and why? Because our works on that day will show not our merits, not what we have earned or accomplished, but they will show that we were joined to Christ, that our faith was real. Jesus says... In Matthew 7, not everyone 
who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He says, look at the fruit. If you have real faith, you'll begin obeying the Father. You'll begin doing what he says out of gratitude, out of love. And that's what our works show. Not that we're perfect, not that we've earned anything, but simply that we really did belong to him, that we really did trust in him, that we really were the children of God inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Our works don't earn anything. They simply indicate what Christ has earned for us. And the same is true with our reward. The Bible's clear. We can expect a reward for our works, but it, again, will not be something we've earned. We all heard, we've all heard Isaiah 64, verse 6. We, all like an unclean, we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The best that we do is filthy in the judgment of God. On our own merits, our works have no merit. But God chooses to reward us for our works anyway. Because Christ has made us his beloved children. When my kids were little, I would ask them to do chores. Maybe rake the leaves at this time of year. Or pick up the sticks in the yard or... Or straighten up the living room. And invariably they did it. But there was always some improvement that could be made. They left some leaves laying around in the yard. They didn't bother to pick up the socks that are laying underneath the couch. Whatever. I didn't punish them for it. I might show them so they could do a little better next time. But especially when they did that of their own volition. Hey dad I just cleaned up the, the, the coat room. Or, hey, I made my bed. And you look at it and the bed's all kind of rumpled. It's no kind of professional job. But you say, hey, that's a great job. Why? Because they did it out of love. Even though it's imperfect, it's a demonstration of their love for you. It's a demonstration that they delight in you. And so with God, when he sees our works, they're far from perfect. But they're a demonstration of our love for him, our devotion to him, our thankfulness to him. And so he receives it as the work of his child and he rewards it out of love, out of mercy, out of grace. So does that mean that it doesn't matter whether we do good works? No, it matters. Because those works are an evidence that the Holy Spirit is working within us. That he's giving us a love for God, that he's teaching us to care what God thinks. And God will reward them, but again... Not because they've earned anything. Simply because he delights in the fact that his children delight in him. So expect the reward. But recognize that this too is a gift of God through Christ. He's the one who earned it. He's the one who made it possible for you to be rewarded. And he's the one who assures you of the reward you will receive. But now there's a, a very real temptation that arises with knowing the extent of God's grace. And I just hinted at it. We, we ponder the gospel and how extensive is the work of Christ. The forgiveness of your sins, the payment of your debt, it's yours by grace in Christ. The righteousness you need to stand, the holiness God demands, it's yours by faith in Christ. Even the faith by which you receive him, the sanctification that transforms your life, the comfort that allows you to endure every little bit of it, even the reward we receive at the end, it's yours because of what Jesus did. 
knowing that there's a temptation to coast. Satan whispers, well, if your works don't count, why do them? That's a real temptation, even for Christians. You know, when, when the pilgrims arrived, they thought the thing to do is to replicate the church right after Pentecost. Everyone had all things in common. And so everyone was expected to go out and farm the fields and, and prepare the crops. Everyone was expected to work on behalf of the common good. And you know what happened? They almost starved. Because everybody figured everybody else would work and they didn't need to really put in all that much effort. That's our temptation. To think, well, if our works don't really count, if it, if it doesn't really earn me anything, then why should I try that hard? Our catechism confronts that temptation head on and it says, never. It is impossible for those who are grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. Those fruits of gratitude, those are the works of your sanctification. Repentance from sin, growing in Christ-likeness, gaining a passion for holiness, digging into God's Word, praying. It is impossible for those who have true faith not to produce such fruits because we're united to Christ by faith and the faith that joins us to Christ the work of the Holy Spirit that gives us that faith, it continues to build us, strengthen us, transform us. We, we love Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. How comforting that is. But don't stop at verse 9. Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God prepared for us to walk in good works. That's part of what He's doing in us. And if we're really in Him, if we really have faith in Christ, we will be doing those good works. They'll look different for each of you. But they will be present in every last one of you if you're in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. If the Holy Spirit is in you, if He has drawn you to Christ, then you will be doing good works, works that demonstrate that you belong to Christ, works that will delight the Lord. But the works that we have in Christ will be works of a particular kind. The things that we do and the reasons we do them will be different than the works of the world. People outside of Christ, why do they do? They do good things, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, they're not doing them for God's glory, so they're not truly good. But, but they do things that look good, and why do they do them? They do them to magnify themselves. Or they do them so they can get that warm, fuzzy feeling. Or they do them thinking that if I do good things for somebody today, somebody else will do good things for me later on. It's called karma. It's a lie. But they always have an ulterior motive. Even if they don't recognize it, they have that ulterior motive. But we heard the ex exhortation in Jeremiah 9. 
Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Our words, our works, our attitudes, all that we think and say and desire and do, if we are God's people, if we belong to Christ, it must all be motivated by our desire to glorify God, to show Him to the world, not to advance ourselves, not to be looked on well in the eyes of the world, but that God might be magnified. And the longer we live with him, the more we see what he's done for us, the more we will desire to put him first, the more we will desire that we would be minimized and he would be maximized, that he would gain the credit and we would fade into the background. And recognize, brothers and sisters, that is the place of the works that you do. It's not just to get your parents off your back. It's not to tick a couple checks on the the checklist to make sure we get to heaven. It's to honor God who has given you everything that matters. Brothers and sisters, knowing all that Christ has done for us, how can we not be grateful? How can we not devote our lives to Him? The world says... You need to have pride in self. You need to have confidence in yourself. Self-confidence, that's the big thing, right? Kids need self-confidence. They don't. They need Christ-confidence. And if we are confident not in ourselves but in Christ, if we are certain that it is on Christ that we stand, then we will not glory in our wisdom. We will not glory in our might. We will not glory in our riches because we'll know that they all can fade. But we will glory in this, that we know and understand the Lord who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. May God lead us to glorify Him who has done everything we need as we seek our comfort in Christ alone. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, You are so merciful and great in all Your ways. Teach us, teach us, Lord, to reject all self-confidence. To cast off all hope in ourselves. And to turn our eyes constantly, daily, moment by moment on Christ. And Lord, as we look to the future... Give us a certainty within our hearts that he who has saved us will not neglect us, but that even the reward we receive in the end shall come by the merits of Christ. And Lord, so we ask that you would lead us to conform all our works, all our deeds, even our desires to the end of bringing glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.